sounded like some 50 years ago today, November 19th, 1969, as we go to record, as the Apollo 12 lunar module, given the name Intrepid by its crew, astronauts Pete Conrad and Alan Bean, made the first pinpoint landing on the lunar surface in the ocean of storms, some 500 feet away from where the Surveyor 3 spacecraft had touched down some three years before. The last voice you heard in the introduction was that of Dick Gordon, station-keeping in the command service module Yankee Clipper, in lunar orbit congratulating his two dear friends on the grand landing they had just achieved. This is Gene McCulka for Talking Space, and in this installment to mark the 50th anniversary of Apollo 12, instead of listening to me kind of bloviate on what the mission was all about, I thought it would be a good idea to go back into the NASA archives again and let the crew tell their story as they did upon their return from the Ocean of Storms at a post-flight press conference. Now, Apollo 12 did a lot more than just simply get hit by lightning when it was launched on November 14, 1969. The mission was an unqualified success, checking all the boxes in the primary objectives column. The Apollo Lunar Surface Experiment Package, or ALSEP, was set up in the Ocean of Storms by Conrad and Bean. The duo also performed a full geologic study and sampling of the landing site, performed the first pinpoint landing on Apollo, which was absolutely critical for, for future missions, further developed the human capability to work in the lunar environment, and finally conducted a full inspection 
of the Surveyor 3 spacecraft and brought back parts of it back home to Earth for material study. Dick Gordon, while on board the command module, was able to find the landing site while on orbit and perform photographic reconnaissance of the Fra Mauro Highlands, which was the objective for Apollo 13, and the Descartes region, which was the objective for Apollo 16. What you're about to hear is an edited version of the post-flight press conference that includes Pete Conrad's opening remarks and the question and answer sessions. Now, I hope this will not only provide further insight into the flight and the crew themselves, but also perhaps give the listener a flavor of what might be coming down the pike with NASA's Artemis program to pick up the baton left behind by Apollo and carry it further into the solar system. So, without further ado, let's just step back in time into a NASA auditorium and listen to the traveler's tales of Apollo 12. Ladies and gentlemen, the crew of Apollo 12, Captains Alan Dean, Richard Gordon, and Pete Conrad. We'll start this morning, uh, Captain Conrad, if you want to open with a statement, we can go right into your presentation. Question Paul. Good morning. I guess the uh, first thing we'd like to do is uh, talk about our uh, number one support team that's out here. And like to ask each one of our wives if they would stand up and say hello. My wife Jane, Dick's wife Barbara, and Al's wife Sue. I guess uh, by way of an opening statement, when uh, we came off of the backup crew for Apollo 9, inherited Apollo 12. I don't think that uh, Dick or Al or myself or any of the support crew <clears throat> realized the uh, key that was sort of handed to us uh, with the mission directive. There were a couple of innocuous little paragraphs in there about lunar surface operations and spot landings or uh, determining how close we could land to a point. Uh, and when we started our training, we took the approach that it would be the second lunar landing and that uh, the game on the second lunar landing was to start the exploration of the moon. And this is the approach that uh, we tried to take with the people that we worked with. And therefore, we devoted most of our time to the lunar operations, <clears throat> inheriting from Neil and Buzz an excellent set of procedures for landing, descent, and uh, ascent. And it was not, as you know, until uh, Apollo 11 landed that the final target site was picked out of Surveyor 3. And by that time, we had a uh, good leg up on lunar surface operations, and we'd taken the approach we should uh, try to make the most of our time on the lunar surface, and we had the ALSAP package to deploy, which was number one priority, the geology to do, which was number two, and if we were lucky enough, number three, to get the surveyor part. We uh, were hard at work while 
I estimate 1% were complaining that science wasn't being done on Apollo flights, while the other 99% of the scientists and engineers were hard at work on Apollo 12, as far as I'm concerned. I think uh, one of the finest groups of people that we've had the opportunity to work with have been the geologists and the prime experimenters on the ALSAP package. We've uh, spent a great deal of time with them. I guess the added benefit was to have eight of them locked up with us in the LRL. They used our time and we used their time and learned a lot more for the three of us next trip, which we'd all like to make. I think that uh, the results and the photographs and the fact that the ALSAP is cooking away merrily up there and sending back lots of good data speaks for itself. And as you all know, Apollo 12 was an extremely routine flight for the first 36 seconds. I apologize for the weather at the Cape, but you know the Navy prides itself in its all-weather operation. And when Air Force Colonel Stafford told us the weather was suitable to launch, we went. Are you ready for questions now? We'll go ahead. You got any questions? John? Uh, Captain Conrad, on your uh, return to Earth, uh, you made a comment about the difficulty in landing uh, Intrepid on the moon, something that it took all your skills that you had to do this. Uh, this caused some concern among uh, people down here. Just what did you have in mind, and uh, what is the, uh, the problem in landing on the moon? To make it short, the uh, worst thing that an aviator can find himself uh, doing is flying halfway between VFR and IFR. I also made the comment that I thought one of the gauges that I had available to me was not working. However, it turns out that the gauge was working fine, and, and out the window I had, in fact, killed off all the horizontal and, and lateral velocity, and when I got down to where I wanted to go completely on the gauges, I was satisfied that I had a good landing site from the look that I had at higher altitude. And I went to use that gauge. It was reading zero, and it was on high scale, and we have a low scale factor, and I reached up and switched it to low scale, and it didn't even quiver. And uh, uh, I should have believed my own uh, eyes, I guess, but you don't like to do that. And I felt that that gauge was not at that time giving me the proper information. I found it quite hard to believe that I, that I could have gotten the velocities killed as well as I did at, at the higher altitude. And uh, so I was continually going out the window to get roll information and a general idea of my uh, lateral and horizontal velocities and back into the cockpit to set the proper attitude for landing. It's very bad to land a limb, rear skid down, moving forward. Uh, that's the most unstable condition. I want to make sure that I didn't get that. And uh, in fact, as you can see from the pictures, we were in a proper attitude with the velocities killed off in the landing was a completely normal landing. The remark I made was pointed at the fact that, that I've been doing this for 20 years and, and one learns to use everything that they have available to them through their experiences. I do not feel that that's an amateur's game. 
I feel that you can make satisfactory landings up there under completely IFR conditions. We've had some great deal of discussions about this since that time. We've gone back and looked at my data and we're recommending probably a, a minor change to the software program to give us another additional uh, little item, which would be very useful. And that would be uh, an automatic nulling of horizontal and lateral velocities, but leaving the pilot with the, with the rate of command, uh, rate of descent command. Now, also, there's a great deal of teamwork involved here and you have to believe your equipment. I had complete faith, the inertial measuring unit and the information that was being given to me by Al mainly, reading out altitude and uh, descent rates. And uh, I feel that there's no problem whatsoever in making a completely blind landing up there as long as you have a good assessment of the landing site before you, you, you land on it. You can get this in a quick, quick look on the way in. Uh, the LPD worked in an outstanding manner. The targeting was, was uh, as I'm convinced, they tell me the targeting was 300 feet left of the crater and I'll bet if I hadn't touched anything and it landed us right on top of the surveyor. That was my impression all the way down. And uh, as you know, we changed the targeting late in the game to the surveyor site rather than the offset point. I, I feel that uh, uh, we've got a satisfactory system, uh, just the way the LEM stands right now to make uh, good landings up there. Uh, you have to realize uh, that uh, by looking from four or 500 feet altitude and uh, several thousand feet back from the landing site, it's possible that somebody in making one of the, depending on the dust situation, uh, may land in, in a 20 or 30 foot crater. However, the spacecraft is designed to do that. Uh, the only reason I landed as close to the surveyor crater as I did is I made a very steep approach into the landing site and I thought I was a little bit further forward than I was. Uh, had I been able to land looking out the window, uh, I, I probably would have recognized this and moved a little bit further forward. However, had we landed on the wall of the surveyor crater, it would have been all right. The spacecraft's designed to land up to 15 degree inclinations and uh, we had nothing that was exceeding that anywhere in the area. I think that uh, Captain Lovell's landing area is going to be suitable. Uh, he has a, a good enough area to uh, find a suitable place. And with the high-res photography, uh, he can take the LEM the way it sits right now without the additional changes to the software. And I think make either a satisfactory visual or a satisfactory instrument landing, depending on the dust situation up there. And uh, that, that's about the size of it. The Apollo 10 and the Apollo 11 teams made so much out of spiritual matters and scriptures that it caught the attention of Mrs. O'Hara, the atheist, and her followers, and also made it noticeable in a way probably that you gentlemen didn't. And I was wondering, and some others have been wondering, if there's any pressure put on. And since you return, has there been any attention or attempts of attention calling your attention to that matter? Uh, had it done any good to say, God bless Mrs. O'Hare up there, I would have done it. However, I... However, I feel all it would have done was serve to give her unwarranted publicity through the press, and therefore, uh, I think uh, we reacted not under any pressure and had any of the other crew members desired to say anything up there that was well within their right 
and uh, had we needed to take leave to be on our personal time up there or something, well, I'd have been glad to grant it as skipper of the crew so they could do it. I also don't really think you have to speak out publicly to indicate your belief in God or Christian activities. Uh, two of you gentlemen had an opportunity to work out that spacesuit, the EVA suit, uh, to a far greater extent than anyone else has before. Uh, could you give us some kind of a feedback as to how well it stood up and what its faults may be and whether or not there are any changes uh, uh, considered for the next flight? Well, let me let me say one thing. Number one, the PLIS worked in an excellent manner. The communications out on the lunar surface are the best communications. If they, if I recommended when we were debriefing in the LRL behind the glass, if they'd put one PLIS outside and one inside, we'd probably have a lot better communications than we had down here on Earth because it seems we can talk over 257,000 miles very easily, but not across a plate of glass. Uh, my hat's off to the suit people. I think that uh, the amount of work that Al and I did out there is a reflection of the confidence we had in the suit. We never gave it a second thought. Now, the suits suffered some wear from the lunar dust, and I, I think it's a problem that to, to remain clean, and, and we're going to have to do something about that, What they, what they, especially if you talk about maybe three days' worth of activity. But uh, I can't say too much for the suits now. One other thing. I think we're at a point in time now where we've proven that man could do just about any job you give him out there. Question is, uh, with our gloves and with the suit, they performed in an outstanding manner and we were able to accomplish every task that we set out. We're at the point in time now where if you want to improve the suits, you can do that and it's, it's dependent on management deciding on how much money is it worth to put into something to make our time more efficient up there? And uh, that's, that's what it amounts to. If you give us a suit that you can bend over in, then we can hustle faster. So you get more done in four hours. I think uh, the PLIS has shown that you can stay out for six hours. Yes, uh, gentlemen, I wonder if we could look at this mission a little subjectively or philosophically, call it what you will. You've been to the moon, you've come back, you've seen the Earth from a distance, and I wonder what your observations in that connection might be. About the moon, Roy? The mission itself, your impressions, your purely subjective impressions of the Earth as seen from a distance, the differences between the moon and the Earth itself, that kind of thing. Start down there with you. Well, from a purely visual point, one of the things that was most noticeable to me is the fact that when everyone's returned from the moon, they raved about how beautiful it looks from the, the Earth looks from the moon. And the pictures that they brought back, I never thought really established that. It looked like a nice blue Earth and, and white Earth and green Earth and whatever else. But when you're up at the moon, uh, it's a little bit different. As we view the moon from the Earth, it's white and flat. It's quite pretty. When you get up at the moon and view the moon, then it's much the same. It's either white or concrete colored, gray or something like that, depending on the sun angle. But when you look at the Earth, the Earth is those colors, but it kind of sparkles. And it's sort of an interesting thing to look at because uh, you can't capture it on, on the film. It's sort of like taking a picture of an emerald or something like that and hoping, hoping to get it. And I'm not just saying that because of the 
the philosophical feeling you have about the earth just in a, from a few visual standpoint it's it's a very beautiful thing i know when we were going down on doi day the earth came up and we took a number of pictures of which pete spoke of one and it's quite a beautiful thing and our pictures didn't capture it either uh, i don't know why it just it just can't be done uh the one thought i had about the moon that that sticks in my mind is almost everything in the universe or that we know of or think about seems to have some utilitarian function we were up there circling the moon and i kept wondering what the function of the moon was it didn't appear to have any capability to support life as we know it it didn't appear to to be doing a lot <laughs> for the earth we could probably live without the tides things would change the balance would change and the only thing i can think about is perhaps that thing has been set up there to provide a like the scientists have said a little bit provide a uh, a storehouse of knowledge to find out how our earth began and uh, where it came from and what it looked like 4.6 billion years ago and or 100 million years ago, which has been lost forever on the earth. And uh, I don't have the answer to that, but it was one of the things I wondered about as I circled and looked down at it. Well, I think you've asked a very difficult question to answer, obviously. I think most of us all have our own particular feelings. To talk about the flight philosophically hinges upon a lot of personal feelings, uh, how we feel about each other, how we feel about the people on earth, how we feel about our loved ones, and everything that we are used to living with, growing up with, being near, and being a part of. And each segment or each part of the flight has a meaning of its own also. I think you realize these things and, and recognize them shortly after TLI, and you recognize that you're no longer earthbound. You're on your way to somewhere else. It just so happened that in this particular case, it was the moon. Uh, it could also happen that in the years to come, it could be somewhere else. But I think you have a mixture of emotions and a mixture of thoughts as to why is it all here? And as Al mentioned, the, the function that each person, each part, each molecule, each body performs in the overall scheme of why is it, what is it, and from where did it come? I think the TLI experience is one where you realize that you are leaving, that you are no longer apart, if you will, other than communicating uh, with the earth. Certainly the fascination and the beauty and the awesomeness of, of the moon itself has a, a profound effect. All of a sudden here you are, and it is something to behold. It's something new and interesting and completely different than you've ever seen before in your life. At the end of three days, I must be perfectly frank to admit the question comes up, what in the hell am I doing here? I belong back that other direction. So very fortunately, you get to do that. And I think you take on a whole new aspect of the philosophical feeling about what you were able to accomplish, what you've done, what you have been able to add to mankind through the efforts of a great number of people. And I think the awesome beauty and the realization that we're going home or we're coming home has its own profound effect. And I think it just leaves me uh, a little bit more humbled, if I can say that in those terms, than I was when I left. I think it, it makes me realize that, that there are things besides 
the problems that we have here on earth to really be concerned about and really think about. And it gets back to the fact that if we can do things like this and take a new aspect or a new outlook on life, why can't we apply some of these same, same things to the, if you will, the mundane, but the very serious problems that we have on earth? Rudy? Uh, just from a, a human factors standpoint, uh, how long do you, th do you think it's possible to, uh, to live with this system on the moon? How much do you think it can be pushed and extended? And, uh, specifically, uh, do you think now it's possible to, uh, to think in terms of stay time, something beyond the uh, 54 hours? Yeah, you're talking about the whole lamb? Are you talking about our EVA system? The suits, the limbs, uh, the habitability of the limb, and, and the, the whole picture. Well, the limb's pretty habitable. Had I not uh, launched off with a suit half an inch too short, which was my own fault, and uh, I had to get Al up in the middle of the night to let it out, I think I'd have sacked out for seven hours. We really had delightful accommodations in there. And uh, I think the limb is uh, habitable enough right now. If you remember, the limb originally was going to stay for seven days. I don't know what they can squeeze out of it. That was when we had fuel cells uh, in the original design. So uh, three days looks uh, perfectly feasible to me. And uh, I, I know Roy got nervous because I didn't answer the question. And I'm going to take your question and turn it back into Roy's question. I guess the biggest thing I uh, <clears throat> sort of remember sitting over at uh, the Lovell's house the night uh, Apollo 8 burned uh, LOI. And... Uh, I sort of thought, uh, I think those guys feel a little lonely up there. Uh, after all, it was the first time. Nobody ever burned LOI or anything like that. So uh, uh, our turn came, and uh, we've done a lot more. And I'm afraid that maybe before the flight, I had schooled myself in the feeling that I was going to be very lonely and, and very way out and uh, very remote. And... Uh, it was completely the other way around. Uh, I liked it so much uh, that uh, I, uh, I go back tomorrow, right now. I enjoyed the, uh, the lunar surface activities, not just for the fun of bouncing around, but the, uh, the, uh, the real work that we could do up there. And uh, so I guess my biggest impression is, is that uh, I didn't know which way I was going to feel when I came back. I want to go back. Let me say a little bit more about that, too, about the PLIS. Uh, Pete covered the limb and the fact that it, uh, you could extend it. It was comfortable up there, and as long as it had expendables and everything, you could stay there for a long, long time and be perfectly happy. Good place. The, uh, the PLIS now, I, as you know, they're doing a little bit more with the OPS so that you have a capability to go further from the limb with your PLIS your backpack, and then if something would occur there, you could get back. I think this is this is definitely the way to do it. I had some concern a little bit about the fact that the PLIS was large and the OPS was large. And uh, from the pictures, you can see it's, it is, and it's pretty heavy. But up on the moon, after about 10 minutes, you don't even know it's on your back. And we always had the feeling while we were there, we could have had a bigger one, a taller one, and we could have put more equipment on the back of that PLIS if necessary, like we put the surveyor bag on Pete's, the 25-pound total uh, array of goods from the surveyor in there, and he moved around, and uh, 
His comment was he didn't know it was on there. And so I think the uh, the suit was beautiful. We never gave it a second thought. And if we can figure a way to keep the, the joints, so to speak, clean, the connectors clean, so that they uh, don't get this lunar dirt in them and uh, get an OPS that'll allow you to come back from a further distance. You got a great system there. That plus could have stayed out six hours. And yeah, I, done a, I think we, we feel that you, what you should do is put man up there and give him a full work day. Uh, most of the work is getting suited up, going through the checks to get out. Once you get out, uh, I wouldn't have hesitated to uh, come back to the LEM and uh, lay down next to the landing gear and take an hour and uh, if I had some way of eating and then get up and go for another five hours. So uh, if you can squeeze some more consumables in the present list and say give him eight or nine hours out there and give the guy a break in the middle, why I think he can, uh, same way if you had a rover, so you, you're out on the rover and four hours later you stop and you take a lunch break and uh, press on and you arrive back to the lem in time to clean up and have dinner and go to bed and get out the next day and do a full day's work. It's the in and out. It's, uh, it's like flying airplanes. It's the firing it up and getting it going. That's all the work. I've been working with Pete for two years. I'd like to go on that mission to see him lie down and rest for an hour up there. <laughs> it could be a great sight. <laughs> if I move in too quickly, answer the question you like. Answer, answer the question you want to answer. I did. I jumped no, I did. I got it. If you have one here on the on the aisle. Who, in the course of what was called a spacewalk, lost his glove. It floated off into space. What happened to his hand? And what would happen to your hand if you took your glove off while you were on the lunar surface? Well, that was the very early days, and, and uh, that glove that he had on was an over-glove for the EVA. The particular gloves that we now have, that glove, you cannot take the over-glove off it, and it's an integral part of the glove. It also has metal uh, mesh in it to... Uh, thermally protect the glove. So it's an entirely different glove than the kind that Ed had. He actually had two gloves, this pressure suit glove and an over glove. We did, we, our pressure suit glove is, is uh, an integral piece, both the thermal and the pressure part of it. Now, if our glove came off, that would be a failure. I mean, that would be catastrophic, but, uh, you know, it's not quite the same as Ed's. Would your hand be frozen? And what is the temperature up there while you're in the sunlight? No, if your glove came off, that's the end of the show. You lose the pressure in your suit, and you're now trying to live in the vacuum. Which you can't do. You can't do that. Forget the temperature. <laughs> I'd like to ask a question to Pete in regard to the entertainment that you took on board the ship and we listened to on the way back over here. A lot of people in the country were overjoyed to find that this was the flight that took country music into outer space. And one question in particular I'd like to ask, would you care to comment on the musical singing jingles that we heard on the uh, trip back? And I'd like uh, comments from each one of you in regard to the musical entertainment, which we all listen to, courtesy of Apollo 12. Well, I think that... Uh we had uh, some country and western music on there, certainly. I like that. Uh, also like popular music, and uh, we had uh, other tapes on board, of which I think we played a little bit of everything back to the ground. And uh, 
they don't agree. I thought I gave them more than equal time on their music. <laughs> uh, right now, or I'm going to say, love them all, son. Love them all. <laughs> but uh, no, we had a little bit of everything on board. That's about it, I guess. Sorry. Captain Conrad, could you give us some... Uh some details about what management has planned for you gentlemen over the next uh, month or so, and also including a, uh, a comment on a report that uh, you're the honored guests at a dinner on Sunday night uh, benefiting the uh, country of Israel. Well, I, uh, I don't know about that. I have the invitation, and I guess we all do, uh, and our schedule has not been completely firmed up. Uh, so in the next month, I know we're going to go to our respective hometowns, and uh, I know we're going uh, to Washington on uh, set the twentieth. And uh, so, aside from that, why that's about it, as far as I know right now. Just want to pursue that uh, this dinner. Are you you're the honored guest, as we understand it, uh, on Sunday night. You understand something I don't understand. I don't know that we're the honor. Yes, I have an invitation to a dinner Sunday night, and uh, that's about all I know about it. All right. I'd like to ask all three of you what changes you'll recommend for future missions. I know you've mentioned some changes in tools, and um, would, would the software change you mentioned, Pete, be the only one that you would for the landing, and any other changes that you would recommend for... Uh, future missions. So I, I, we didn't recommend any changes. Uh, the software change that I mentioned had already been discussed, I think, even prior to our flight. And uh, as far as I know, uh, we are going to uh, change the software in the command module to handle uh, the uh, any more situations like the, uh, the uh, lightning discharge because the uh, IMU lost its reference to the computer is what actually happened, and they can fix that. And as far as I know, uh, I don't know about any other changes. You know, we didn't recommend any. Uh, we recommended some suggestions on what to do with some of the tools, and uh, and not specifically, but I think what Al and I have recommended that we get together with uh, the uh, people that put the tools together in the Lunar Surface Operations Branch and the follow-on crews and uh, see if we can't make ourselves more efficient. I mentioned this efficiency business. I I, uh, I don't want anybody to mis misunderstand what I'm saying. Our, our equipment performed in an outstanding manner all the way through the flight. However, see, we were the first ones to go up there and really do geology and the, this documented sample and so forth. We we obviously have come up with some ideas of how to better do this job. Now, like anything else, uh, you know, the pilot would always like the world and, and the management would like to have everything be cheap and work perfectly and somebody else with operations, they want to fly every day. So like anything, this becomes a, a uh, everybody's got to sit down over the table and come up with what we really want to do and how much money is, is available and, and uh, how much more time we can afford to develop equipment. You know, we've got flights going. So we didn't recommend any changes, but I'm sure that we'll sit down and work out some better ways to do things with the follow-on people, especially lunar surface operation. 
I think Pete has answered this question, but I would like for Dean and Gordon to say, would you like to go again to the moon? Or do, would you rather um, do something else in the space program? I'll answer that question like Pete answers all of his. Yes. <laughs> yes. <laughs> what, what did Bain say? <laughs> Can tell us getting to the end of the road. Especially now that we're all captains. <laughs> so far, just about everybody who has gone on a mission has come back losing weight. The same applies to all three of you, especially Mr. Bean. I wonder if there is, you feel something wrong with the food, you don't like it, you don't like the choice, or do you're simply too excited or too busy to eat? I don't think it's any of those uh, completely. Uh, the doctors uh, tell me that everybody undergoes a, uh, a fluid rebalance in the body, and I think uh, part of the weight loss is that. I think you actually have less fluid in your body in zero G, and that, that's part of something that they're working on, and I believe they're getting some data from our flight on that. Uh, food, it, some people eat more than others up there, and uh, some people's habits change. For instance, I lost a pound a day on, on Gemini 5, so I lost eight pounds, and this time I only lost two, and I ate more. So I think it's a, several of those factors. Well, maybe the other guys have some feelings on that. Roy Neal. Gentlemen, one of the things that uh, we news folk appreciated was the first news conference from space as part of your mission. I wondered how it was from the astronauts' point of view and whether you'd like to see that uh, practice continued for future reference. Well, Roy, I'll make my own comment on that. I think there were two very useful things. One of them was the fact that you lose data, <clears throat> Al mentioned. You, you do so many things that it's very difficult to remember them all. So the first thing that was very useful, aside from the news conference, was to give the scientists the opportunity to ask us questions before it left our mind. That was number one. Number two, I think the press conference was was very pleasant as far as we were concerned. And uh, as you know, I, nobody wants to watch something that's been done before. And the crew of Apollo 12 felt very strongly that uh, everybody's seen somebody eat up there, everybody's toured the command module, and that we would have preferred not to have a show at all rather than to bore the people on the ground. And the, uh, we, we accepted the idea of having the press conference uh, very well. We wanted to do it. Uh, before the flight, as you know, and uh, we were very happy to do it. And uh, as far as I'm concerned, I'd do it again, but I don't want to be put in a position of speaking for other crews. That's, you know, their prerogative. Uh, Captain Conrad, you said, I want to go back, but the trend among uh, Apollo commanders is that they do just about everything but fly. They go into business, they become White House advisors, uh, and they go into upper management. Uh, what is your future uh, in Apollo or in uh, NASA or is it somewhere else? There's always 10% that don't get the word. <laughs> <laughs> I haven't gotten the word. As far as I'm concerned, I'm still an aviator and a professional at my job. I intend to remain in the office and anybody over there that doesn't think I'm headed for the front of the line for another ride better look out. I know I got to go to the back and take my turn. But I'm ready to go again, and I want to go again. And uh, uh, what you thought about the 
about the dust problem on future missions. That is, uh, uh, would it be tougher to land uh, in rougher terrain if the dust was kicking up? Uh, there might be boulders or hills down underneath you that you couldn't see. And finally, uh, would you have any recommendations to eliminate the dust problem? Could you, could you alter your landing approach somewhat? You hear that at all? Yeah. All right. Uh, I think uh, real rapidly, uh, something like one minute and 50 seconds in P66, which is not as long as Neil. Uh, I believe the film shows that we were picking up the dust starting around 200 feet. Uh, I already explained, but I'll say it again. I don't think the dust is a problem for future missions as long as you uh, get a look at your landing site before you get into the dust and ascertain that it's all right. It's perfectly all right to go and land IFR. And uh, I don't recommend any changes to the procedures that we're using right now. Uh, and astronauts uh, recently returned to the moon. I'm wondering uh, how you feel about astronauts being in politics in view of the uh, Glenn Jefferson's of the Senate race in uh, Ohio. Oh, is he in politics? Or did he, I miss something in the news? Or? No. Uh, great. <laughs> when you retire, I guess you can do anything you want. There's a real good way to answer that question. We'll let the people in their respective states or districts tell us what they think of the new politics. We'll take a few more here, and then we're lined up. Gentlemen, what is the final estimate, if there is a final estimate, of the distance that you landed from Surveyor? Well, it's somewhere in the order of 600 feet, but uh, it, we couldn't have gotten much closer. They didn't want us to land within 500 feet of it because of uh, the dust. They didn't want us to blow dust off. Very well. I have two questions. Uh, one, I'd like to know from both Pete now what you thought what the most interesting thing was that you did on the moon, whether it was setting up the OSEP visit to the surveyor or the geology. And then secondly, I was interested in why um, you, you said it was easier to move on the moon, but you felt it was more difficult to get work done. Could you elaborate a little further on that? Actually, the second one first, I probably didn't say it exactly right. I meant uh, it was a lot easier to move on the moon, correct. And I meant that it was easier to do jobs on the moon, but you didn't seem to work as hard. I know that doesn't sort of make sense. We were able to stay with the timeline that we worked out on Earth, uh, both for ALSEP and the geology. We were able to move a lot further on that geology than we'd ever imagined. But at the same time we were doing it, we didn't get near as warm in the suits as we did on Earth doing the same thing. Now, I realize you're wearing heavier suits, heavier backpacks, and all that sort of thing. Uh, but you'd think on Earth when you're doing that, you'd learn to work at a certain rate, you know, a certain heart rate. And I would guess our heart rate must have been when we were doing that on Earth, 150 or 160. Yet when we were working at a normal speed on the moon, do the same jobs, we seemed to work around 135, and we didn't seem to get particularly hot. And I really don't understand why it is. I think it, it has to do with the fact that, for example, when you run, uh, you push off the ground, and there's a floating period between the time you push off and the time your next foot hits. And it's a lot longer than when you walk on the ground, particularly with a backpack on or something like that. And I think this all provides, in increments, little rest periods for you, strangely enough. 
So you end up being able to do the job and be a lot more rested. My legs never got tired in the four hours at all. I felt that if we'd gone six hours except for wanting a slight drink of water, it would have been no strength. And uh, I kind of feel that when uh, 13 goes down, I don't know how long they're going to be out. But six hours, at the end of six hours, I have a feeling they're going to be pretty, feeling pretty good when they get back in. So you're able to do plenty of work. There's a slight difference. You can't lean over as far, for example. That became quite a problem both for picking up the Alcet, picking up rocks and all that. We're going to have to do some thinking about that. If you could lean over a little bit more, uh, you could work it a lot faster, I think. I'll sum mine up real fast. The thing that I thought was the greatest about the lunar surface is that we got eight hours on it. We got all our job done, plus a little more. We're running way over schedule, so let's take this last one in the front row. And this brings up the point that how severe is the thirst problem while you're in the EVA, considering especially that there will be longer EVA periods in the future? I'm hoping there will be, because I think, for example, Pete and I could, could have stayed out a lot longer if we have the time were available and we planned for it, which we didn't, of course. And... Uh, I think that's the way it's ought to be done, like Pete indicated earlier. <laughs> I don't think the thirst problem is is a bad one. You're not becoming dehydrated off. It's just that the uh, suit air is rather dry, and you do a lot of talking up there between each other and the ground. And I think all you need really is a couple swallows so that your throat gets wet again and then you're ready to press on. If you didn't have it, we could have done it. Just uh, you can operate a little bit better when you feel better. Let me let me add that one thing real quickly. We, we were aware of this before we ever got out. And on our checklist, we had... The point where we put the helmet on for the last time until the last checks, we had a fueling point there, and we refueled on lots of water. And really the one time that we got thirsty, and I think the ground thought we were getting a little tired, is when we made our long run from Sharp Crater all the way up to Halo Crater, which was the longest distance we went at one time. And it was uphill, well, gradual, but it was an uphill run. And I think that I got dry then, as Al mentioned, and the addition of a little water, which not be much trouble in the suit to take care of that. I'd like to remind you there's a lunar science briefing in this auditorium in 45 minutes, 11.30. Thank you very much. Years later, when Alan Bean had become a rather accomplished artist, telling the story of Apollo and his own lunar experiences through his artwork, he created a piece called Conrad, Gordon, and Bean, The Fantasy. It depicted an absolutely impossible photograph. All three of them in winter EVA suits at Intrepid's landing site on the Ocean of Storms, with Gordon in the middle holding his hands up as if to say, well, how did I get here? Conrad is at Gordon's left with his hand on his friend's shoulder, and Bean is to his right, holding one hand above Gordon's helmet in sort of a bunny ear configuration as the photo is taken. One could see the lunar module Intrepid in the background. That particular piece, in my mind embodied right there the deep friendship that this crew had for one another. Pete Conrad and Dick Gordon were already very good friends before Apollo, having both served on board the aircraft carrier USS Ranger together, but they adopted Alan Bean into the fold, and the three became grand friends. And while I was grasping and searching for words to end this show with, quite by accident on social media, I stumbled across the words of Alan Bean himself courtesy of an old friend who is an accomplished artist in her own right, Lucy West. She had reposted a placard that Alan Bean's widow Leslie had placed out there 
with a quote from Alan in tribute to the 50th anniversary of Apollo 12. And I thought I would end the program with Alan's words. Quote, In the end, what I have left from my walk on the ocean of storms are memories, almost like it was a trip to the seashore or a drive in the country. They mix together in a constant stream of thoughts and images that come and go like all memories do. The most precious things I brought back with me are the same things I left with, my two best friends. And I realized that when you go through every, any endeavor, any journey, whether it's across town or to the moon and back, all that matters is that you share the experience with people you love. That's what makes life special because ultimately, that's all there is. That's really all there is. For Talking Space, this is Gene McCulkin. Thanks for listening.